Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast. My name is Harold Nichol. On August 23, 2020, the Food and Drug Administration announced a decision to grant blood plasma treatment for coronavirus COVID-19 patients with a fast-track authorization for its emergency use as a treatment for hospitalized COVID patients. This emergency use authorization triggered an outcry from scientists and doctors who said the decision was not supported by adequate clinical evidence and criticized the FDA for what was perceived as bowing to political pressure. News coverage about this potential treatment has done little to clarify whether it's useful or not. The idea that there could be a motivation behind the fast-track authorization for this potential treatment other than looking for a useful therapeutic, is troubling. More to the point, who should decide what patients receive in treatment for their illnesses? Now, to help us make sense of how reforms for the pharmaceutical industry could potentially help separate facts from spin and who we should all listen to is respected neurologist Dr. Stephen Goldstein. And uh, Dr. Goldstein, can you give us a description of how blood plasma works to treat viruses? Yes, uh, blood has a lot of different components in it, and plasma is just one. When someone is infected with a virus, the body generates antibodies to fight off the virus. If an individual who has recovered from this virus donates to plasma, scientists can isolate the antibodies from the plasma and give it to patients who are still in the early stages of infection. In theory, the plasma should help people fight off the virus while their own body catches up and makes its own supply of antibodies. It is not a new approach. Blood plasma as an inoculation against disease goes back to the early 20th century. Now, the fast-track authorization was meant to get a potential remedy to the public sooner than would normally be possible. With a global pandemic confronting literally everybody, it sounds reasonable, at least to a layperson like myself. What do you think? Well, I can see it from the point of view that while riskier than normal, there are times to get treatments into the public sooner than not. In the midst of a global pandemic emergency, this might be that time. Okay, now in lay terms, what does fast track mean? It means the FDA has issued an emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma that's short of formal approval. It's based strongly on the observation that convalescent plasma appears to be safe and has reasonable enough signs of effectiveness to be included as a treatment for COVID-19. After the announcement to fast-track blood plasma came a hail of criticism about the decision. Without spending a lot of time on the specifics of those criticisms, isn't it just part of the deal that in an emergency, some steps are skipped? Yes. That is the nature of an emergency, but this is not a normal time. Within 24 hours of the announcement of the fast-track decision, Dr. Stephen Hahn, the FDA's chief, walked back to his assertion that this treatment that his agency had just authorized for the treatment of coronavirus would save 35 lives out of every 100 people who gets it. Okay, he walked the decision back. How, how did he do that, or, or why did he do that? Well, he reportedly said that his error was based on what he called the poor choice of words. In fact, his statement read, what I should have said better is that the data show a relative risk reduction and not an absolute risk reduction. Okay, from where I sit, that is some 
serious hair splitting when it comes to word choice or, or vocabulary. Yes, and the science he was discussing made understanding this issue more challenging, especially on the heels of the hydroxychloroquine controversy. The 35% figure Dr. Hahn cited is apparently derived from a study that has not yet been published. The study observed tens of thousands of hospitalized patients, 80% 80 of whom were in an ICU, who were given convalescent plasma to treat their coronavirus infection. At 30 days, the mortality rate was 22% for groups that were treated early and 27% for patients who got the medication later in the course of the disease. So mortality apparently improved by five percentage points. That's an absolute risk reduction to which Dr. Hahn's statement refers. If the 27% mortality is reduced to 20%, the mortality rate would be about 22%. That's a relative risk reduction. We have no idea what the 30-day mortality is without any treatment. Studies suggest patients on respirators have 25% to as much as 100% mortality. Clearly, there's only a suggestion that the treatment is effective at this time. Okay, so I, I've got to ask, in the aftermath of all that, what happened? Dr. Hahn apologized the next day for his choice of words. His public relations person was let go, as was an outside public relations contractor. Okay, so sounds to me like they killed the messenger, but um, let's shift gears because this and the confusion over hydroxychloroquine share some, some things in common. Both are inexpensive compared to some of the other treatments and vaccines that are being tested that are anything but inexpensive. Well, that's right. And the companies who make more expensive treatments spend tens of millions of dollars lobbying the Congress and buying influence. It isn't right. According to a study by Brigham Young University, the health sector lobby spending increased more than 10% in the first quarter of 2020, while the non-health lobby sector increased 1%. Meanwhile, the number of new lobbyists registered in the health sector increased by a staggering 140%, while the non-health sector registrations increased 63%. Okay, so lobbying is, is regulated and not against the law. Help me and our listeners understand how, how this isn't right. What I mean is that even the most even-handed person anywhere who runs for office and relies on donations to pay for campaign expenses makes him or herself vulnerable to an outside influence like the pharmaceutical industry. At best, this gives the impression of corruption or undue influence. The BYU researchers I mentioned collaborations with Johns Hopkins University, Columbia University, and the University of Cincinnati found that across all segments of health care lo lobbying, the biggest lobbying increases come from the pharmaceutical industry. Indeed, 16 of the top 30 healthcare organizations and lobbyist expenditures, and expenditures were pharmaceutical. Okay, so what is the solution to this, what amounts to really just influence purchasing? It's easy and will probably never happen, and that is to ban the pharmaceutical industry from lobbying. When people making the rules have a stake in the outcome, they have little incentive for banning a practice that puts money in their pockets. Okay, but how much money are we really talking about here? 
Well, between 1999 and 2018, the pharmaceutical and health product industry spent $4.7 billion, an average of $233 million a year, on lobbying the U.S. federal government. $414 million on contributions to presidential and congressional electoral candidates, national party committees, and outside spending groups, and $877 million on contributions to state candidates and committees. Contributions were targeted at single legislatures and, uh, legislators in Congress involved in drafting health care laws and state committees that opposed or supported key referral referenda on drug pricing and regulation. So as consumers of health care, what can we do with this information? Patients should not rely on what anyone in Washington says. They should rely on their doctors to make the right decisions for them and no one else. Physicians should be free to prescribe drugs or treatments off-label without fear of lawsuit or sanctions from state regulatory boards. Full stop. No questions from non-physicians, pharmacists, or government regulators. Now, you talked last time about the ridicule of doctors who are supportive of hydroxychloroquine and the influence leaders who spoke out against it and the latest blood plasma treatment. Among those who are critical of these two treatments, but in favor of the very expensive treatment of remdesivir was Dr. Anthony Fauci. How might this type of posturing affect the public health? Let me answer that with the example of a well-known antibiotic, penicillin. Penicillin was not an approved prescription when it saved Annie Sheaf Miller's uh, from a certain death in March of 1942 as she suffered from a streptococcal infection, a common cause of death in those days. She had been hospitalized for a month, often delirious, with her temperature spiking to nearly 107. Her doctors tried everything available, including sulfur drugs, blood transfusions, and surgery. All failed. Before Ms. Miller's doctors succeeded in saving her life, only a few experiments had been conducted with penicillin in mice and people, with results mixed and largely negative. Her doctors got a tiny amount of what was still an experimental drug and injected her with it. Her chart, now at the Smithsonian Institution, shows a dramatic overnight drop in her temperature, and by the next day she was no longer delirious and soon was eating full meals, one of her doctors reported. Ms. Miller's life was saved, so eventually were the lives of all those beset by bacterial infections like streptococcus, staphylococcus, and pneumococcus. Penicillin also saved the lives of servicemen and civilians wounded in World War II. In earlier wars, people died by the thousands from bacterial infections resulting from their injury. Imagine there was hesitation by Mrs. Miller's doctors about the lack of a final and conclusive double-blind study on penicillin, or stopped by a fear of negative press attention. She would have died in 1942. Instead, she lived to be 90 years old. So in any decision about treatment, listen to your doctor. Absolutely. Um... And the example of penicillin and Ann Chief Miller should coach and remind all of us to listen to our doctors and not government employees, paid spokespeople, or anyone with an agenda. We all depend on our elected officials to protect us from those who have an axe to grind. And frankly, we should insist on this protection and make elected officials accountable. How do we do that, you may ask? Well, we are assembling a list of names and tools 
to use for all of you here on the Houston Healthcare Initiative website. We're going to give you um, names and contact information of the members of Congress who serve on healthcare-related committees and allow you to contact them yourselves. More tools like this will follow in the weeks ahead. So please check the site often, www.houstonhealthcareinitiative.org, to stay up to date. And as always, thank you for listening. Tell your friends about us and come back next time for another edition of the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast.